I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad that you're here with us and especially thankful that you're spending part of your Valentine's Day with us. So hope it's a good use of your time and a good use of your morning. So last week we covered a lot of ground in chapters 9 through 12 of the Gospel of Luke. And we focused primarily on a big turning point in Jesus's ministry. Because in chapters 9 through 12, Jesus predicts his death more than once. He specifically sets his face toward Jerusalem. He challenges his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. And from this point forward in the rest of the book, everything changes. Every step we take on this journey with Jesus is one step closer to the cross. One step closer to his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners like you and me. But nonetheless, before that time come, Jesus had a lot to do. He had a lot of lessons to teach. He taught his disciples valuable lessons about what it will mean to faithfully follow him well after he's gone. He taught them lessons about prayer, taught them lessons about trust, taught them about the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because those are all things that they're going to need to follow him after he's ascended to be with God. Now, today we shift back to some of Jesus's teaching again. And in chapters 13 and 14 of Luke, a common theme of his teaching seems to emerge. And that theme is admittedly one that sometimes rubs a lot of people the wrong way. That theme isn't always a pleasant topic of conversation. It often makes us very uncomfortable, whether we're Christians or not. And the theme of Jesus's teaching in these chapters Is judgment. So open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verse 22. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 746. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But before we do any reading, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your ultimate expression of love at the cross. A love that no romance can match up to, a love that no feelings can stand up to at all. Uh, Just that sacrificial love of the Holy One of God, your perfect Son, offering Himself up on our behalf. God, nothing compares to that. God, thank you for your word that we can read this morning together. Thank you for a church family that can encourage each other and love each other and help each other during times of need. I pray that you'd give us open hearts and open eyes and open minds as we read your word this morning. Thank you again for your son, Jesus. We love you. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. So while judgment is one of the most common themes in the Bible, it's not a bad thing to find judgment unpleasant. In fact, it's probably a good sign if discussing something like the judgment of God bothers us just a little tiny bit. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? You see, while Christians trust that God is good, and while we trust that God truly is just, and that God knows what's better far more than we do, You can't help but be just a little bit saddened over the concept of God's judgment. 
the eternal judgment of someone created in God's image, that should break our hearts. Because if we really believe that every single human being, every single human life is sacred, then at some level we should mourn the idea of someone standing before God, taking his judgment, taking their punishment upon themselves. In chapter 13 of Luke, verses 31 through 35, Jesus laments that in the end, when it's all said and done, Jerusalem, God's city, will reject him and face judgment for it. In Romans chapter 9, Paul laments the fact that so many of his Jewish countrymen have rejected Christ and are inviting the judgment of God upon themselves. Judgment should make us very uncomfortable if we love people the way we're called to love them. And the reality of judgment should spur us on to evangelism, to tell people about what Christ has done for them, to warn them of the consequence of sin that is not repented of, the consequence of sin that is not nailed to the cross along with Jesus's broken body. And warning people of judgment for sin Well, that's exactly what Jesus does in Luke 13 and 14. Let's start in Luke 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Again, there it is, toward Jerusalem. That's the itinerary. Verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you began to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught on our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Ultimately, the concept of judgment hinges on that question in verse 23. Will those who are saved be few? Another way to ask that question, who really will be saved? I mean, who doesn't have to fear God's judgment? What kind of people can stand with confidence before God on the day of judgment? That's the question. And as Jesus responds to the question, his answer is clear. Not everyone will be saved. He says the door is narrow. Some will wait until it's too late to knock. Many won't be saved. And those will face weeping and gnashing of teeth and exclusion from God's presence. Jesus makes it very clear that sin and rebellion against our fellow man, and even more so, sin and rebellion against God himself, are serious offenses that will not go unpunished, one way or another. And then just to add some mystery to his answer, 
Jesus says that of those few who are saved, well, many of them will be those that you might not expect. So as you start out the chapter, this discussion of judgment, you see that inconvenient truth from the mouth of Jesus that not all will be saved. But of course, that still begs the question, who will be saved? Well, for that, let's look at the rest of chapters 13 and 14, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So based on the words of those verses, it appears there was a tragedy where some Galileans were killed at the hand of the Romans. They were killed at the hand of Pilate. And adding insult to injury, the Romans didn't just kill them. Well, the Romans killed them while they were offering sacrifices to God. That's what meant by the phrase, their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Talk about a cruel way to go. But then Jesus brings up what all these people are thinking. They mention this story. They don't really ask any questions. But Jesus says what they're all scared to actually say. He asks the question, does this terrible way of dying, this gruesome way to go, does that prove that they were worse sinners than everyone else? Did they specifically do something to deserve something like that? Was this kind of death a form of God's judgment? And then Jesus adds another freak scenario, a freak accident where 18 people were killed when a tower collapsed. Ironically, if you're in the insurance business, you might refer to that as an act of God. But was it really an act of God? Did those people deserve that especially tragic kind of death? Did they do something to bring that upon themselves? Again, was that a form of God's judgment? Well, it seems that sometimes people are a little too quick to assume that tragic events like those are judgment from God. But then Jesus changes the conversation. He changes the conversation instead focusing on the need for all to repent. The need for everyone to repent. He says there's no one who doesn't need to repent. And tragedies like getting cut down while offering sacrifices, tragedies like dying in a freak tower collapse, according to Jesus, that should only provide an even greater sense of urgency for repentance. This is good wisdom for those who are of the mentality that, you know, I'll do what I want now, I'll have fun, and then I'll repent later. Well, the problem with that mentality is that you don't know whether or not there will even be later towers collapse tragedies occur people die and jesus makes it clear that you must repent before that time comes or you will be judged you will perish so back to the question 
Who then will be saved? Well, according to Jesus, those who repent of their sin. Those who acknowledge their rebellion. Those who confess their sin. Those who make efforts to right the wrong as best as they possibly can. Those who, by the power of the Spirit and by the power of God's grace, flee from that sin in the future. Those who repent, those people are saved, according to Jesus. But there's more. Chapter 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So while Jesus is teaching, he heals a woman who has been physically disabled for 18 years. There's a story that's almost identical in Luke 14, 1 through 6, only with a man who has dropsy, which we would define as a type of kidney, maybe heart disease. But you can't help wonder if Luke is trying to tie this story back, the story of the disabled woman, back to the passage that we just read about the collapsing tower. You see, 18 people on a tower, 18 years of this woman's disability. Why does Luke include that detail? Well, maybe Luke is trying to send the message that in the same way, those people's death wasn't necessarily a sign of God's judgment. Well, neither is this woman's disability. When I was 18, my parents probably thought they were under God's judgment, but maybe they weren't after all. Sometimes you think you're under God's judgment. Maybe not. And the time and place that this woman is healed proved to be very important to the story. It happens in a synagogue and it happens on the Sabbath day. And Luke tells us that after this amazing event occurs, this once in a lifetime thing to see. Well, the ruler of the synagogue is angry. Now, why would he be mad after seeing something as wonderful as this, as joyous as this? Well, it's pretty simple. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And in his mind, Jesus' healing of the woman, well, that counts as work. And his response about coming back on another day, think about that. Think about that response. He's essentially looking this woman in the eye and telling her, come on, lady. You've been disabled for 18 years. What's the harm in another 24 hours? How cruel, how heartless can someone be? Well, that exposes the core problem for the ruler of the synagogue. His problem is that while he's very committed to God's rules, he completely misses God's love. His being angry at this woman being healed, 
That's the equivalent of Jesus walking into a hospital today, placing his hand on a dying patient, healing the patient, but then the nurse getting upset that he didn't wear gloves. That's how totally out of touch this synagogue ruler is. How cruel and heartless he is. That's why Jesus goes so far as saying that this man, this ruler, well, they treat animals better on the Sabbath than they treat people. So back to the question, who then will be saved? Well, according to Jesus, it's those who repent. According to Jesus, it's not those who superficially follow all the rules. It's those who display the love of God. Because like Isaiah said, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But what else? Is there more? Chapter 14, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down on a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. So Jesus speaks of humility, something that to this day, almost all people seem to appreciate, right? I mean, we see humility and we like humility. We like people who are humble. We don't like people who come across as arrogant. But as Jesus talks about humility, he's not just giving practical advice for the sake of saving face at a fancy dinner. He's not just trying to save people the embarrassment of making a bad or impolite move at a meal. He's making it very clear that those who are saved, they display humility. Now, Jesus would soon put his money where his mouth is. After all, he'd humble himself to death on a cross for you and for me. And you can't get away from the language of judgment in that last verse. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And he who exalts himself will be humbled. So again... Who then will be saved? Well, according to Jesus, those who repent. According to Jesus, those who display the love of God. According to Jesus, the humble will be exalted. But there's still one more passage to look at this morning in chapter 14. Verse verse 16. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go to examine them. Yeah, examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, this is my favorite, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Wives. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So Jesus compares salvation to an invitation to a great party. But in the story, not everyone who's invited actually accepts the invitation. And it reinforces that inconvenient truth from earlier that not everyone will be saved. And on top of that, not even everyone who hears the gospel invitation will be saved. Many who hear that invitation will reject it. Maybe it's because they're too prideful for that repentance thing. Maybe it's just out of bald-faced, outright rebellion. Maybe it's because they simply have their eyes on other things. Or in the case of those people who died in the tower collapse, maybe it was just too late. And while that's certainly heartbreaking, it's joyous to know that there are others out there who will accept the invitation. It's tempting for us to read a passage like this and think, man, all my evangelism is for nothing. All those people who I tell about Christ probably aren't going to accept the invitation. Well, not according to Jesus. The door is narrow, yes, but the door isn't closed. And one of the truly sad facts of life, when you think about it, is that there are wonderful, honest, sacrificial people out there who won't accept the invitation to Jesus' banquet. Because the best kindness and the best honesty and the most moving sacrifice, all of those things are for nothing if not done in the name of Christ. So, who then will be saved? Well, it won't be everyone. Those who repent of their sin, those who display the love of God, those who display humility, those who accept the invitation of the gospel. Now you hear all that and you think, okay, sounds pretty simple. Admit I'm wrong sometimes. Yeah, sure, I can do that. Try to be a little more compassionate. Okay, I can try. Think a little bit less of myself from time to time. Got it. Pay lip service to an invitation. Yeah, I can probably say the right things to that too. I can say a prayer. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Well, here's the problem. Sinful people like us. We aren't exactly predisposed to repentance, are we? We don't always reflect the love of God too well, do we? Humility isn't something that always comes naturally to us, is it? You see, the problem is that salvation is far more than just a common sense decision. It's far more than just some good habits of behavior modification. It's far more than just a healthy sense of self-awareness or a cognitive acceptance of an invitation or an affirmation of a statement of faith. A far deeper change must occur. It's much bigger than that. And to describe that phrase, that change, Jesus might use the phrase bearing fruit. We see it in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. 
Jesus tells a story about a fig tree. But the problem with the fig tree is that it isn't bearing fruit. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about bearing fruit. He did the same thing back in chapter 6, talking about the problem of the human heart. And in these verses, a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit, it will be judged. It will be punished. It will be cut down. Right now, I have a tree in my front yard that is about to meet the exact same fate. And at first, I thought it was just a fluke. Summer of 2013, it looked pretty healthy, pretty normal. Summer of 2014, eh, looked a little bit dry, looked a little bit weak, didn't think too much of it, though. And in summer of 2015, it's become clear that that tree is dying. Every season that goes by, it bears less and less fruit. And it's obvious that the tree is dead. Now, back in chapter 6, Jesus talked about how the only way to get a tree to bear good fruit, the only way to get an evil heart to bear good fruit, was to change the roots. It's to change the heart. And in the same way, the only way sinful human beings like you and me can bear fruit is by changing our hearts. Now, the bad news with that, of course, is that on our own, none of us have good enough hearts. We don't have the power to change our hearts on our own. And if we think that we can bear fruit and be saved without that heart change, then we're fooling ourselves. But the good news, of course, is that God is in the business of changing hearts. I can't do anything to fix the dead tree in my yard. Nothing I can do about it. But God, he can fix dead hearts. And that's where the beauty of the Bible, the power of the word, that's where it comes in. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. That's the effect of God's grace. The word and the spirit and God's grace, they pierce our hardened hearts. They run a plow through that dry and cracky and dusty ground of our hearts. They plant the seed of the gospel. The rain falls. The seed grows. It bears fruit. And as a result, our lives bear fruit. Fruit like the things Jesus just talked about. Repentance. Love. Humility. And acceptance of his invitation. But for those who don't bear fruit, the message is clear. Judgment awaits. They'll end up like that fig tree in Luke 13. They'll end up like that tree in my front yard in the very near future. They'll end up cut down. You can't get around the conclusion that if we don't bear fruit, judgment awaits. Superficial repentance Legalistic rule-keeping, false humility, lip service to the invitation of the gospel, that's not bearing fruit. So again, who then will be saved? Those who bear fruit will be saved. Those who, by the grace of God, have hearts made new. Now our job, as people who have been saved by God's grace... People who do bear fruit, 
People who have new hearts that only come by the word and the spirit. Well, our job from here is to go out and to be honest about the reality of judgment. As uncomfortable as it may be. Our job is to warn other people about the judgment waiting for those who do not bear fruit. The judgment waiting for those who do not know Christ. The judgment waiting for those who may have some superficial repentance, who may have some occasional love, who may have some false humility, who may pay lip service to the invitation, who may call themselves followers of Christ. Our job is to warn them of the peril of not bearing fruit by the word and by the spirit. We're called to be honest about it. But then at the same time, as we go about this work, we're also called to remember the judgment that God has saved us from. Because in the same way that judgment is so terrible, salvation is so wonderful. And in the same way that the reality of punishment for sin makes us rightfully so uncomfortable, well, the reward for those who bear fruit ought to make us weep for joy. We don't do anyone any favors when we sidestep the issue of judgment. We're called to be honest about it. We're called to warn people of the judgment that only the blood of Christ can save them from. And all the while, may we never, ever, ever forget the judgment that Christ's blood saved us from. Let's pray. Father, again, it's a good thing if judgment makes us uncomfortable. I pray that it would make us so uncomfortable that we would get out of our comfort zones, that we would be open, that we would be honest about what your word says, that we wouldn't lose so much sleep about what people might think of us. Maybe we'll be painted as extremists or radicals or backwards. But God, the most cruel thing we could ever do is not warn someone of judgment. So Father, give us boldness, Give us humility. Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about that passage about the sawdust in one person's eye and the log in the other person's eye and how we're to be aware of the log in our own eyes before we point out the speck in somebody else's eye. Father, as we warn people of judgment, may we never forget the judgment that we've been saved from, that we're no better than they are, that we don't get to take any credit for being saved, that is purely by God's grace. And God, I pray as we leave here this morning, we would have open eyes and open hearts and open minds to the fullness of who you are. The fullness of who you are is revealed by your son, Jesus, who was so patient and is so merciful and so kind and so gracious, but also so honest. And even at times, so untame. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that those who know him, those who have been saved by his blood, can stand at the day of judgment with confidence.
We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Admittedly, this past week, I thought to myself, wow, I'm preaching on judgment on Valentine's Day. Okay. But when you really think about it, one of the things that makes the love of God so much more beautiful and makes the love of God so much more glorious and makes the sacrifice of Christ that much more moving and humbling is the fact of what it saved us from. It saved us from judgment. Well-deserved punishment. So this morning, if you don't yet know Christ, I pray that you would talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions. You don't have to make any decisions today, but I pray that you would leave here with an open mind about what it is that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God might be calling you to do. So if you have any of those questions, talk to our elders. They'd be happy to pray with you. We wish you a happy Valentine's Day. And again, thank you for joining us.